Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 788 with Roger Martin on how to make better strategic choices. Roger is one of the preeminent thinkers on thinking. So you'll learn one, why people resist correcting their outdated models. Two, powerful questions to dismantle those outdated models. And three, the simple word shift that makes you more strategic. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to pieces that we mentioned here, please visit us at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP788. Now here's Roger's story. Professor Roger Martin is a writer, strategy advisor, and in 2017 was named the number one management thinker in the world. He's also former dean and institute director of the Martin Prosperity Institute at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto in Canada. Big thanks to Roger for sharing his wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Roger. Roger, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Hi, it's great to be here. I'm looking forward to this. Oh, me too. Well, I'm so excited to dig into your wisdom. Tell us, what's the big idea behind your book, A New Way to Think, Your Guide to Superior Management Effectiveness? The big idea is you got to be careful to not get owned by thinking models. You get told, oh, this is the way you should think about this problem. If it doesn't work... Don't go back and say, well, because people say that's the model that should be used, keep on using it. That's being owned by your models. Instead, you not need to own your models. They need to work for you. And if they don't, you need to change them. That's the big idea. All right. Makes sense. Now, the word model, I think we're going to be saying it a lot. So could you give us maybe four or five examples of models that professionals use just so we have a real clear sense for what we're talking about there? Sure. A model would be in order to uh, align the interests of management with uh, shareholders, you should give them stock-based compensation and that will create alignment. Or you should uh, always make decisions based on data, right? That's the only good decision is a decision made on data. That's a model. Mm -hmm. The job of a corporation uh, is to make sure it controls and coordinates the various businesses underneath it. That's its primary job. That would be a model. Customer loyalty is the most important thing about customers. Those would all be models that we use then guide our behavior, right? So if you say, oh, you must align the interests of management and shareholders with stock-based compensation, 
you will have a stock compensation uh, plan that's based on the performance of the share price as a key feature of executive compensation. So these models drive behavior. So is there any distinction, not to play too much of the semantic wordplay game, between a, a model and a rule or a principle? Not really. I, I guess what I would say is a principle tends to be a portion of a model, right? Mm-hmm. So our principle is alignment. Mm-hmm. And the way we'll make that happen is through stock-based compensation, right? So you've got a principle that informs other aspects of a model. Mm-hmm. That's how I, I would distinguish them. You could call a model and a rule kind of relatively uh, similar I just think of a model not in a better way, but as a slightly more comprehensive than either rule mm-hmm. or principle. Okay. It's a set of things that we will do because we say if we do those things, it'll get the result we want. And is it possible that we operate from some models that we're not even aware of? In fact, we do that all the time. Let's say you're a, you're a CEO and you walk into a, a retailer that sells, sells your, your product. You don't like how it's merchandised. Mm-hmm. Let's say you're, you're fashion line. I'm fashionable. Okay. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you go to the people in this, uh, who are running the store and say, you people aren't following my, uh, the, the corporate guidelines on this. I'm outraged. That's a model right? Mm -hmm. It's a model that says it's their fault, not yours. Your instructions Mm -hmm. weren't (laughs) confusing uh, or (laughs) your way of merchandising actually doesn't sell stuff. It's your morons or your, you're not so much morons, you're insubordinate in some, in some way in not following my, that's your model is you have to observe when people are being insubordinate, not following instructions, and and chastise them uh, for doing so, and that will improve things. Mm-hmm. And that we know best in terms of the optimal mm-hmm. approach for merchandising versus that you may be in for a surprise, like, yeah, we tried your way, but uh, this way is 30% better, so we're going with our way. Absolutely, absolutely. And that executive probably wouldn't have articulated that in the corporate jet on the way to visit the the uh, the retail outlet, my model is to make sure they're obeying and to chastise them if they're they're not. But in fact, that's what naturally flows because in fact, that is his or her, probably his, managerial model. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so you say that folks have a tendency to double down on their existing models even if they're not working, what's behind that? It just seems to be, Pete, a human tendency from what I can tell, which is we like to have models, right? Because otherwise you have to think about everything from first principles. So you have a way of doing things. So, so there's a affinity with the idea of a model. And then there's social adoption. So if everybody else is doing it, right, if everybody else is doing stock-based compensation and there are stock-based compensation consultants who come and tell you how to do it and the board uh, gets evaluated on the basis of whether it's got stock-based, all of that stuff, if that becomes the standard, it's easiest that's because we're social human beings to say having a model is better than thinking from first principles. And I might as well adopt the model. That's the one that's being used most because that's probably a good, a good idea. 
right? And uh, so, you know, you're a plumber in ancient Rome, and mm -hmm. all the other plumbers are saying, you know, this this great material, lead, is really malleable and makes for good water pipes, and so let's let's do that too, right? And because, boy, it seems to work. Ten years later, all the people die from lead poisoning, but at the time, it's, time it seemed like a good idea. So I think those two things cause people to to feel a certain level of concern, anxiousness, outright fear when they have to do something other than the existing model. Mm -hmm. What you're saying there as in contrast to first principles really resonates. I'm thinking about when I was just getting my start, I'm thinking, okay, you know, I want to do some the speaker author guru biz. And he was like, oh, you got, you got to have Twitter. You got to have a blog. I was like, oh, okay, that's just what I do. And <laughs> I didn't really find those to be especially effective tools versus reasoning from first principles would suggest, okay, well, fundamentally, what is my, my offer? How is it distinctive from alternatives and competitives available? Who is my customer? What do they want? What are their preferences? How can I make my prospective customers aware so that is a whole lot more work than, oh, you got to have a Twitter, you got to have a blog, <laughs> but it would have served me better. <laughs> no, no, exactly. And that, if I can go on, that makes for a very interesting uh, case. What I'd say is you took something that maybe would have been a model that a consumer packaged goods company would utilize mm. and ported it over to another domain rather than accepting the domain's model. Ah. That I find is interesting. Similar story. As you may, may know, I was a, a dean of a business school for 15 years, and it was my first academic job. I was never dean before, and and all the development people, right, the fundraising people came to me and said, well, this is how you do it, right? You get uh, a list made of all the rich people mm -hmm. uh, in the country and rich graduates, and then you go ask them for money. Okay, this is your job now. <laughs> hmm, I was thinking, okay, like, let's, like, I know a lot of rich people, and let's just put me in their shoes and and say, how appealing would that be to me? So <laughs> you're going to come and see me because I'm rich, no other reason other than that, and mm -hmm. because apparently I should want to give you money, uh, all you have to do is ask and, and I'll give it to you. <laughs> and so I said, I, I guess you could do that, but it doesn't seem like a good idea. I was about this as an idea. I find people who have means and have something that they're really interested in, that the school is also interested in. And let's get them involved in that because they care about it and they want to be uh, involved at that. And in due course, they will say to us, can we support this cause in a greater way? And you know, all the fundraising people said, well, what does this guy know about fundraising you know geez i mean mm. this this guy's crazy well on the basis of that we got university of toronto which is a big gigantic university been around forever uh, university of toronto's only uh six-figure unsolicited gift ever okay where it was not asked for its first seven-figure unsolicited uh gift and its first eight-figure unsolicited gift literally one guy a guy who was into real estate and got involved, who didn't think there was uh, nearly enough good real estate courses producing the people. And, and Toronto's a big real estate town uh, uh, producing the real estate folks. I said, uh, agree, we would need to serve the, the community. Would you 
be willing to teach a course if you could, we got you the appropriate help. He did. He loved it. Students loved him. He started hiring all sorts of students from it. We hired other real estate professors. Got to the point where we were the, were one of the best two or three uh, business schools for real estate in North America. We then built built a, a new building, and he came to me and said, "You probably need somebody to give you the cornerstone gift for the building, right?" And I said, "Yeah," and, and he said, "Here's eight figures." So that was a different model, right? A completely different mm-hmm. uh, model than the than the dominant model, because in that case, I wasn't even prepared to spend my time on the dominant model because it just seemed silly to me. But you're right. I mean, that requires thinking from first principles, which is not as straightforward. And if my my approach had failed miserably, yeah, rather than succeeded, they would have said, "Yeah, he is a nut." Yeah, well, I think that there's one reason right there is it's riskier to do something novel and different. And it's the, I'm thinking the old saw, no one ever got fired for buying IBM. Like, exactly. oh, yeah, that's the thing. Yep. IBM, they yep. make the business machines. That's their name. So buy them from there. And so that, I guess that's one reason why folks might double down. Yeah. No, it's a perfect metaphor. Nobody got fired. Nobody ever got fired for using the dominant prevalent model of the day, mm-hmm. full stop. So absolutely. And that's why I, I'm not saying to people in the book, whatever the dominant model is, I don't say reject it, right? I say, I could understand you trying it, mm-hmm. but just make sure you write down what I expect to happen when I try this model and then check what actually happened. And if there's a big negative delta there, then here's here's what I'd encourage you to do. Don't just keep doing it because everybody else is doing it. That might be the time for you to think about, is there another way uh, to think about it? Mm-hmm. So if the dominant model is working, keep doing it, is my view. It's just when it doesn't work. Okay. Well, I was just about to ask, how do we know if something isn't working anymore? Are there any indicators or telltale signs? It's time to shift away. And it sounds like one master key is simply write down in advance what you're hoping the thing will do and then check later, did it do the thing? Yes. And that may sound trivial, but it doesn't happen very often, Pete. And that leads to, there are a bunch of human dynamics problems uh, kind of uh, that you have to take into account. One human dynamic problem is human beings have an infinite capacity for ex-post rationalizing. Oh, yeah. Right? You can ex-post rationalize anything. And, and we know this in a sad, sad, sad way from war crimes trials, right? Where often somebody's mm-hmm. on the stand who's committed just a horrible, terrible crime that they know is horrible and terrible, but they rationalize it and saying, well, I had no choice, right? So you can, you can rationalize anything. Mm-hmm. And so you have, to, you have to help the mind not rationalize. And the only way I believe you can do that is by writing things down. Because otherwise, if you say, oh, well, you know, we're going to build a new factory. And with that new factory, uh, it's going to cost, you know, $100 million, but we're going to increase sales with by 50% within five years. And that will pay for uh, the factory and a good return on our $100 million investment, right? If you don't write that down, Five years from now, when sales are up 35%, you're going to say, yeah, exactly. This, yeah, this is exactly what we, what we said. Sales increased 35%. And you would never ask the question, hey, what didn't go the way we thought that made it 
35 rather than 50, which actually made it a return that's below our cost of capital, not above our cost of capital. You wouldn't do that because it's lost in the mind's mists of time what you actually thought your model was going to deliver for you. So I want you to write it down so that when it happens, you can compare what's happened to that, and that will give you the information you need. Did it perform the way I wanted it to perform, that I assumed it would perform when I used it? Okay, very good. Is that like the master key or any other key questions or things to do there? No, that's the master key. Okay, gotcha. Well, so could you maybe tie this together for us with with a story of someone who they had an outdated model and then they made a shift to a new way of thinking and, and got some cool results? Sure. So I could talk about customer loyalty, right? All right. So the dominant model is that the most important factor uh, for you in being profitable is having high customer loyalty. And what that is, customer loyalty, right, is a conscious act. So that would be, you know, I don't know, what toothpaste do you use, Pete? Oh, uh, Colgate Total Paste, not gel. Perfect. Colgate Total Paste. (laughs) And so it's worked for you in the past. And so you are consciously driven to show loyalty to that brand. When you go to the toothpaste aisle, you consciously say, hey, I'm loyal to that. It's worked well. I will do that. It turns out that all the behavioral science, all that research is telling us that that actually the much stronger driver of that is habit is unconscious okay it's actually it's actually your unconscious so so literally the way the mind works for you since you're total colgate paste if your hand reaches for total colgate or colgate total gel your subconscious starts yelling at you Mm -hmm. saying what the hell are you doing (laughs) paste paste works paste is most comfortable paste is most familiar you're asking me to do something new i'm worried i'm nervous so it's actually an unconscious uh driver and lord forbid that you reach for pepsodent (laughs) or something else right and then they'd say you've gone completely off the rocker oh my god cats and dogs sleeping together i mean it's going to be it's going to be horrible Right, so the, it turns out the subconscious loves comfort and familiarity more than more than anything, right? Mm-hmm. So what you want to make sure that you're not messing with is habit. And so one thing that companies can't help doing is refreshing and redesigning. Oh yeah, and it turns out that. Colors and shapes are uh, really important visual cues before that you uh, you actually can read the the lettering on most things, and that would mm-hmm. be the case on Amazon when you see the little chiclet there. It's we first see colors and sh- and and shapes, and so when you change the color of something or change the name of something too, it is a huge negative for habit. And so Procter & Gamble. So Procter & Gamble, Tide, unbelievably uh, profitable and and venerable brand, been around for for 70-plus years, right? And what it turns out is that people have a Tide habit 
more than they are loyal to Tide. Mm-hmm. And so when Tide, when 50 years ago, when the the transition was started to be made from powder detergents to liquids, the first liquids uh, came into being, Procter & Gamble said, okay, Tide's the dominant uh, detergent. It has the largest market share. But people see that as a powdered detergent. And so to make sure we do best in the now nascent liquid detergent business, what we need to do is is have a brand new brand name. It's mm-hmm. called ERA, and that will be our liquid and Tide will be our, our powder. The ERA launch was an unmitigated disaster. It just it never, never got any traction, anything. And then some bright person at Procter & Gamble said, hmm, what if we launched Tide Liquid? And why don't we put it in an orange bottle with the same logo, the bullseye logo on it, and call it Tide and put a little Tide Liquid beneath it? Blammo, it quickly became the dominant liquid detergent brand and has been ever, ever since. Mm-hmm. Why? Because people had a Tide habit and they had a habit of buying the laundry detergent that was in orange with a bullseye on it with four letters on it, Tide. Then as time, time went on, Tide did smart things like when they figured out how to put bleach in the, the Tide it, uh, itself so that you, in the detergent itself, so you didn't have to have a separate bottle. They learned their lesson and, they, and guess what they called it? Tied with bleach. <laughs> Very good. And then a exactly. Tide pod. <laughs> yes. And a Tide pod. Yeah. But, but every once in a while, every once in a while, they forget, right? And so when they came out with the innovation of how to have a Tide, a detergent wash as well in cold water as in warm water, right? Forgetting the lessons that they learned, they said orange is a warm color, perfect for Tide. But cold, we need a cool color for that. And so they came out with a cold water tide in what? Blue bottles. Hmm. Guess how that went? Not well. (laughs) Not well. Disastrously bad. Mm -hmm. What was their incredibly insightful fix for that? (laughs) Go back to the color. (laughs) Put it in orange bottles, then it became the dominant cold water detergent. So that would be an example of a company that began to really understand at a deep level the power of habit mm-hmm. over loyalty. Does loyalty matter? Yes, it for sure does. Having a warm feeling, a, a conscious feeling about it is good. But if, if you right, interrupt habit and interrupt the subconscious, it overwhelms loyalty. Like, think about it. It's, it's amazing, at least to me, right, when you think about it, is everybody who loved Tide, when you come out with Tide and cold, cold water, which is an added feature that should make your Tide better, it flops because it's in blue bottles? Mm-hmm. Holy smokes. So the dominant model tends to be in with marketers. Well, we have to refresh. Uh, our logo is looking dated. We have to have a new logo. We have to have a new modern color scheme. Maybe we'll even change the name of it. All of that stuff is bad, 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 bad. Mm-hmm. But it's done all the time. 
Well, and, and I guess in terms of if, if habit is driving your beautiful market share position, then certainly. I guess if you're an upstart and there's not very many people who've got the habits yep. and your colors or shapes aren't nailing it amongst the consumers, well, then sure, you know, have at it. But yeah, I can see how it's costly to shift there. Yeah. And can I give an example on, on that, Pete? Because it's a good yeah. MySpace versus uh, Facebook, mm -hmm. right? MySpace, of course, was the dominant first social media site and actually in its peak year had more traffic than any other site of any of any sort, Google, anything. But if you look at the history of MySpace, MySpace kept from day one completely changing its look and feel so that there was no consistency, no consistency in the way things were presented, new features that were that were put on it. It was referred to in, in the press as a dizzying array. Mm -hmm. Think then about Facebook. Yeah. Like it has utterly consistent look and feel from the word go, even when they made their right painful transition where there was the only real dip in Facebook's uh, history was when they had to make the transition to mobile. Mm. Mobile looked just like look, feel, everything. Facebook understands habit. MySpace didn't. MySpace is gone. Facebook is worth a trillion. It's so important. If you're a startup, you must establish a look and feel. Netflix did a good job of that, right? They changed their underlying product entirely, but they kept as many other things consistent as possible mm -hmm. that helped people feel comfortable. And again, it's an, it's an issue of you feeling comfortable and familiar not being upset. And for what it's worth, this this relates directly to RTO, return to office, right? All right. Because in essence, you could argue that COVID was the greatest forced habit break since at least World War II and maybe the Great Depression, where lots of habits just had to be broken. And one habit that was broken was people like you and me and tens of millions of others waking up every morning, getting in the car or getting on, on public transit and commuting to an uh, office and working all day in an uh, office and then commuting back at night, right? That was the habit. And this was a habit that had a bunch of negatives to it, especially like if you lived in the greater New York area, greater Chicago area, greater LA area, it would be a painful, painful, long commute. But it became the ingrained habit, right? It was just you did it unthinkingly. Mm-hmm. And then what happened, right, was a force majeure break of that habit. You couldn't blame your company on the habit being broken. It was the government saying, you must do this. And so you had to adopt a new habit, which was painful, right? For many people, they'd say, oh, my God, kind of working from home. I had a setup. I had a seize the guest bedroom or seize the sun porch or the kid's basement play area and turn it into my Zoom office. And instead of I couldn't talk face to face with my managers and my employees. And uh, uh. But what happened after, after probably six months? <laughs> it was your habit, right? It was like, oh, roll out of bed, make your coffee, go to the guest room, sit in front of uh, my computer and do Zoom calls. Right. So that became the new habit. Right. So that was first called working remotely and then became the new habit. Right. Then two years on, companies say you must return to office. Right. 
they thought of it, these companies thought and still think of it as getting back to where we were, going back to what is standard, you being at the office. That is not at all what the subconscious thinks. The subconscious says, oh my God, they're making me do a brand new thing. They want me to work remotely, (laughs) right? The office is the new remotely. And you see what happens with the habit, the way to think about habit, right, is that there's whatever you're doing, your habit. So for you, it's uh, Colgate Total Paste. That's your habit. And the alternatives are Crest and Pepsodent and Colgate Total uh, Gel, which apparently is is abhorrent to you. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> every time you have a purchase occasion, there's a race and it's a hundred yard dash, right? And Crest and Pepsodent and Colgate Total uh, Gel are at the starting line, right? And Colgate Total Paste is on the 90-yard line. And the gun goes off. And guess who wins, right? Yeah. If, for some reason, they Colgate were to, were to say, you know, we're totally tired of that total name. We're going to call it Colgate Total, or we're going to call it Colgate Fantastimo. And, you know, we're going to change the paste. That paste is dull and old. And we're going to make it something that's a combination of paste and gel, like in a twirl, right? What they've done for Pete, right, is moved the thing he automatically bought from the 90-yard line to the zero-yard line, along with all the other alternatives. Mm-hmm. And you'll win some of them, right? Because it's a fair race at that at that point. But it goes from being a profoundly unfair race in your favor if you're colgate to a fair race that's what's happening with return to work right your job which you had comfort and familiarity going for it that was zooming from home and not doing the commute that had was on the 90 yard line just got put back to the zero yard line to be compared with I'm going to quit for a year. I'm going to find a new a job out here in the burbs, or I'm going to change to a company that continues to allow people to work from home. Mm-hmm. And so it's just massively destructive for the companies asking you to re- return to work. And they think it's disloyalty. Pete's not loyal enough to come back to the office. No, it's mm-hmm. habit. It's Pete just has this visceral thing that he can't necessarily even understand fully that says, Pete, it's time to think about doing something else. So this misunderstanding loyalty versus habit is going to cost big American employers who are asking you to come back to the office uh, massive turnover. The stats are 67% of people who are being asked to go back to work are considering alternatives. Yeah. That's a great metaphor with the the race and having the huge head start because it's like, huh, okay, so I have to do something different. Do I want to do that? Well, let's look at all the options. Yep, exactly. <laughs> As opposed to just keep doing what you're doing and don't ask any of those difficult questions, employee, and just don't rock the boat. Yeah. And I can give a personal example, right? So I'm a bit of a sportsaholic and I had a a go-to sports app. It was cbssports.com. I don't even know why I started using it. But I just Mm -hmm. 
it was the one I went to. And I put up with cbssports.com IT people deciding that they would do refreshes and updates to make the site better and work better and everything. But then they came up with a total redo that they were exceedingly proud of, right? They would they sent me messages about, hey, get ready for the brand new site. This is going to be awesome. The navigation, everything was completely different. The look and feel completely different. And after it being a, I don't know, seven year, maybe uh, a constant user of it, I just said, oh, okay, now's the time to test out all the sports sites and see which I like best. Mm -hmm. And now on the first page of my iPhone is ESPN.com and CBSSports.com has lost me, not forever. They've lost me until such time as ESPN screws up in the same (laughs) same way CBS Sports did. For the subconscious, possession is way more than nine tenths of the law. Mm-hmm. I am an ESPN.com sports app guy now, and it's that game's over. It's on the 99th yard line. Okay. Well, <laughs> rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a chapter I, I find intriguing when it comes to strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you say, in strategy, what counts is what would have to be true, not what is true. And that is one of my favorite things to teach. So I want to hear you take the floor. What do you mean by this question, what would have to be true? How do we apply that when we are doing decision-making effectively? Yeah, most of strategy is about analyzing, doing analysis, right, to come up with your strategy, a very analytical exercise. And most people who go into strategy are kind of analytically inclined. The problem is by analyzing what is, you're never going to find out what might be. Right? Mm-hmm. You're never going to create the future, lead the future. And so rather than focusing on that, what is true, which will direct you towards what is and focus your mind on what is, if you ask the question instead, what would have to be true, you can imagine possibilities. You can say, here, I'm going to imagine we do this rather than what we're doing now. Now, if you just do imagination, you'll come up with all sorts of crazy things that are just dumb, dumb, dumb ideas. But if you say, what I'm going to do is ask, what would have to be true about the industry? What would have to be true about the customers? What would have to be true if there's a distribution channel about the distribution channel, about our capabilities, our costs, about competitors, for that to be a great idea, right? Then you can create a logic structure that says, if those things were true, that would be a great idea. Mm-hmm. Then you can imagine another possibility and say, what would have to be true for that one? Well, if these other set of things were true, that would be a great idea. You can do another one, ABC. You've got a third, a third one. What would have to be true for that? Then you can ask the question of those things that would have to be true, right? Which are we least confident are true, right? And then we can focus our efforts on saying, well, if those things would be necessary for this to be a good idea, but aren't true today, like Steve Jobs, and it's like, here's the idea. Why don't we sell people an MP3 player that is three times the cost of price of the best MP3 player out there? We're going to make a white and have a wheel on it. How about that for an idea? 
Mm-hmm. What would have to be true is people want to throw money money away, like pay you three times X for an MP3 player with no greater capability than anybody else's, no new technology anymore. What would have to be true, though, would be this would be of greater use because they would be able to more seamlessly download songs in a more user-friendly way onto that machine. They can't now. But how's about we do this? How's about we go to all the record companies and arm twist them into selling single songs for 99 cents rather than albums? And we'll put it on a site called iTunes and make it super easy for them to pay and super easy for them to download, right? So you ask, what would have to be true? You'd have to have that something special. Then you go and figure out, can you make it true? You figure out that you can. Then you go do it. And sure enough, you start selling the dominant market share of MP3 players, expanding the MP3 player market dramatically and doing it at 3x the price. Mm -hmm. That's the power of saying not what is true, but what would have to be true and can we make it true? And by asking what would have to be true for it, you can focus your efforts on the few things that aren't true now that you'd have to make true to create a great strategy. So that's why what would have to be true is way more powerful than what is true. I dig that. That's fun in a creative invention being ahead of the game sort of a way. I've often asked myself this question and just in terms of what would have to be true for this option to be worth picking and then to list those out and then say, okay, well, and then how could I test that? And it's amazing how uh, (laughs) you can figure out things to do and not to do. One time I was trying to promote a book and I saw this publication that was distributed to a bunch of producers for for radio and TV shows. And it was expensive to be included in this, but I thought, okay, well, this would be really cool. You know, if I got on a few shows, you know, get the word out, this is probably a worthwhile investment. It wasn't, I regret spending that money. But then months later, someone called me and said, hey, Pete, I noticed that you were advertised in this publication. How'd that go for you? Was it worth it? It was like, wow, if I had followed my own teachings, I would have done exactly what you did. What would have to be true? It gets you a lot of bookings that sell a lot of books. How can you test that? Call some people who bought it and see if it worked out that way for them. Exactly. Of course. <laughs> yeah. And this is what we did with the relaunch of Olay, creating this mastige positioning of it, where you had a mass prestige, like a Nordstrom's first floor uh, or Macy's, whatever, experience in your Walgreens or your Target. And it wasn't true that there was such an experience, nor was it true that that retailers would say, yes, that's a great idea. But we went to Target, did an arrangement with Target where we helped fund a transformation of some stores to test out the idea. The product flew, I mean, flew off the shelves in the test. And then the rest is history, right? Mm-hmm. Target said, how fast can we do all the rest of the stores? And then everybody else said, why are you why are you bad people just doing something with Target and not with us? And we said, well, because they said it would do it. Are you saying you'll do it? Yes. And blammo, it turns the seventh, eighth place skincare product into the number one skincare brand on the face of the planet, massively profitable. But it was asking what would have to be true and then figuring out a way to test that. You're not going to test it by launching the product nationally everywhere where you don't have the experience. You work and spend some money, just spend some money and time with Target to figure out if you could make it true, would it succeed? Oh, beautiful. Well, Roger, tell me anything else you want to make sure to put out there before we hear about some of your favorite things. 
No, I think you've done a really nice job of talking us through the core essence of the book. So no, thank you. Oh, thank you. All right. Well, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I guess I'm, I, I would go all the way back to JFK, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, because it is consistent with the advice I give all my students and protégés. I follow the doctrine of relentless utility, right? If you're just relentlessly useful, good things will happen. Mm-hmm. All right. And could you share a particular favorite study or experiment or piece of research? The favorite piece of research that I ever did in my entire career was in 89, when I convinced somebody at Procter & Gamble to do a study that they didn't want, but that I knew there was something we would find. The question was, how should Procter & Gamble think about its customers? Now, they consider you, Pete, although you don't buy Crest, they consider you a consumer and they consider mm-hmm. Walmart, uh, Walgreens, et cetera, customers. And, uh, and at that point they said, well, we've got, we've got mass merchants like Walgreens, Walmart and Target drugstores like uh, CVS and Walgreens and supermarkets like Ralph's, Kroger's, uh, Wegmans, et cetera. And we've got C stores. And it just struck me that that wasn't the right way to think about it. And so I just started looking at their top 100 customers and trying to figure out whether there'd be a better way to think about it. And one day it struck me that maybe it's a better way to think about it is what is the merchandising philosophy of the customer base? And uh, because what was emerging then, because Walmart was still very small then, but growing quickly, was this notion of EDLP, everyday low pricing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Walmart and a bunch of other chains were doing EDLP, and everybody else was what was called high-low. They'd have things at a high price for most of the time and then have it on deal for part of the year. And the entire CPG industry was set up, including Procter, was set up to support high-low. The idea at at P&G at the time was these high-low people are more like us. It's like Wegmans and Ralph's, they're differentiated. And these EDLP guys like Walmart and Food Lion and, and a few others at the time, they're these big brick warehouses and cinder block warehouse looking places, and they're down and dirty. And so they're not really like us. So anyway, did the study and looked at those two as segments and came to the relatively stunning conclusion for, for Procter & Gamble that the same-store sales growth in high-low, all of their high-low customers together, the same-store sales growth of their customers was zero. The same-store sales growth in EDLP was 7% a year Mm -hmm. compound. The growth in stores in high-low was net zero, and it was 7% compound annual for EDLP. And then what I discovered is our market share, category by category, if you just added them all up, and our our market share in EDLP was higher than our market share in high-low. And on the basis of that and probably other stuff, Procter & Gamble was the first CPG company to flip and orient all of their systems to serve EDLP. 
And uh, that got them a jump in their North American sales growth in the 90s was, uh, especially the first half, was phenomenal because while everybody else was was sticking with their sort of high-low focus, they were EDOP, and that's when they created a Walmart team that put a whole bunch of people in Bentonville to uh, work closely with them. So that's my favorite piece of analysis I ever did because it helped transform the way Procter thought about its uh, customers in a way that enormously benefited them for a while. Now everybody else figured it out in due course. You had to move on to what's the next thing that's going to move the needle. But I always liked that. And I liked it because it was so hard to convince anybody there to let me do this study. All right. And how about a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? I guess it's my uh, relatively new MacBook Pro 13-inch. Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? To my website, all my uh, writing is organized on that, and that's uh, www.rogerlmartin.com. And you got to put the L in, or it'll take you to a real estate <laughs> broker in Houston, who is very nice. Roger Martin is a very nice guy. <laughs> uh, he sends me all sorts of emails that come his way. I send him my books. He uh, likes my books and reads them. And so we have a good friendship, but it is strained by the number of people who forget the L. So rogerlmartin.com or at Roger L. Martin is my Twitter handle. And I write a, what has become increasingly popular weekly piece in, on Medium. If you're a Medium person, uh, called the Playing to Win Practitioner Insights series, 89 long, the 90th of uh, the coming Monday. So those would be the places to find me. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. Relentless utility. Think first about am I being useful, right? Can I say from other people's perspective, I am providing utility? And if you do that, good things will happen to you. Don't sweat anything else. Just be relentlessly useful. All right. Roger, thank you. It's been a treat. I wish you much fun and interesting new ways to think. Terrific. Thanks for having me. There's so much power in that question, what would have to be true, both for unlocking new possibilities, innovations, and worlds, as well as for making wise, rational, strategic, sensible, complete decisions right here and now. What would have to be true? for this to be wise? What would have to be true for this thing to succeed? Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP788. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.